0: Section nineteen of the Spirit of American Literature This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org Recording by Bruce Peerry The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. Section nineteen William James William James was one of three or four important American men of letters of his generation and it is as man of letters and human being not as technical philosopher that we shall discuss him here to be sure the professional and the literary aspects of this multitudinously gifted man are not to be completely separated so far as a maker of books is identified with a limited subject he must be judged by the standard special to that subject and james was a philosopher he wrote little outside metaphysics and psychology not to discuss him as philosopher would be to neglect his chief importance but when a writer by virtue of his personality stands forth from the technicalities of his subject and captures imaginations that are not wont to dwell in the special field where he labours he becomes a man of letters and the man of letters survives after the philosopher has been tucked away in museums universities and other preservative institutions it is sometimes the case that the lesser philosopher is the greater man of letters or that the untechnical aspects or portions of a philosopher's work most broadly secure his immortality schopenhauer compels admiration from florid optimists and from idle readers of literature who care nothing for his fundamental theories whereas kant assumed to be a greater philosopher than schopenhauer Exhausted every resource of human thought and the German language to discourage people from reading him. It is certainly not Plato's metaphysics, but the portrait of Socrates, the poetic, fanciful talk of the master and the young men, which outlive the centuries. If the absolute should open its thin lips and declare all James's philosophy null and void, James would march prospering just the same overriding with his cavalry charges of living illustration all the inhibitions of philosophy or any creature thereof. It is high time, he says, to urge the use of a little imagination in philosophy. He used not little, but much. He has the vision, the fertility, the abundance of analogy which he ascribes to Fechner, and which he says professorial philosophers usually lack systems die but vision is imperishable poets speak with still living voices long after their private beliefs and religions have become dead issues transcendentalism is deader than marley's ghost but emerson is not dead pragmatism may become a dead issue but the great expounder of it has embedded its principles in vital matter less ephemeral, less transitory than the stuff of many famous books of philosophy. Every theory, every article of faith which James declared, grew out of the soil of life, and was fostered by the most opulent and incandescent imagination among Americans of the generation that is now at threescore years and ten. There is only one other of William James's stature and originality—Mark Twain even the fine novelists mr howells and mr henry james are not the human equals of those two in all departments of life which he touched william james was a liberator a champion of human rights and the privileges of the spirit a redeemer of his age from stupidity and commonplaceness and intellectual tyranny he was of the few who reclaimed the arid desert which american literature had been since the passing of their father's generation he redeemed philosophy from rigid and jejune abstraction made it alive for living people and tried to make living people alive to philosophy he was one of a small band who redeemed the humanistic departments of harvard university from the sterility and impotence into which they had fallen during the past twenty-five years the teacher the philosopher the man of letters does he seem to shine the more brilliantly in all three capacities because he had so little competition in his immediate environment because great teachers do not as a rule live in university communities because philosophers do not live in the midst of life and men of letters contemporary with james almost unanimously refused to be born in these united states he was a great teacher in a university where a dozen years ago surely great teachers were few in the non-scientific departments there was norton a survival from a generation that read literature and knew not phds there was also one teacher of literature whose merited popularity with his students vainly clamored in administrative years for official recognition which is even now incompletely accorded and there was the department of philosophy these were the only men who produced anything like literature who could do that which they presumed to teach in his talks to teachers james says with mild irony that all we need to do now is to impregnate our organized education with geniuses he well knew that genius or even a conspicuous talent is the most serious disqualification with which a man can be burdened if he wishes to teach in an american school in his sketch of thomas davidson who might have added lustre to harvard had the authorities willed to receive him into the faculty james protests against the disposition of university officials to reject men of ability in favor of routine professors the reason of course is that routine professors are already in charge and they cannot endure the rivalry of first-rate intellects the sections of the harvard faculty which deal with art and letters those departments which should have a great civilizing influence which should inspire young men with poetry and beauty and feed their imaginations have all been benighted in routine save only the department of philosophy palmer royce santayana and james it alone is impregnated with genius its members write significant books to a small group of men and to james especially is due the spiritual salvation of harvard or as much of harvard as the faculty constitutes during an administration which was hostile to a good deal that is important in education an administration the more discouraging because so servilely praised a true disciple of james should hasten to add that harvard has not been guilty of any unique individual stupidity for our master tells us that most human institutions by the purely technical and professional manner in which they come to be administered end by becoming obstacles to the very purposes which their founders had in view james's talks to teachers is one of those rare manuals of advice whose precepts the counsellor himself put into practice he treated his pupils as human beings he assumed them to be intelligent gentlemen and by this assumption it illustrates one of the principles of his psychology he helped them to be so their views and interests were to him not juvenile inferiorities to which gowned wisdom graciously condescended they were equal democratic human stuff valuable to the man who sat on the other side of the desk for he was a real philosopher of the race of socrates in a subject like philosophy he says it is really fatal to lose connection with the open air of human nature and to think in terms of shop tradition only He talked to his classes as man to man urbane gracious witty and withal vastly learned He unrolled his wisdom without pretension and without the wrong kind of reservation to use his own words He forgot scruples took the break off his heart and let his tongue wag. The writer remembers one little accident that resulted from his off-hand liberal way of talking philosophy. The subject was a volume of metaphysical theology, a wise but rather dull book, in which the author had mingled together his traditional deity, and an abstraction as shapeless as a cloud, and less substantial, consisting of the Babu words of philosophy in the thicket of words some of us were resignedly losing ourselves and we expected to be lost throughout the course but after a lecture or two of preliminaries the thicket became alive vistas opened not toward the absolute to which the book was driving but to all manner of lighted clearings and glades of intelligence the discourses were unmethodical colloquial yet the method of a mind that had already thought out most of the things discussed in the book soon became evident the papery attributes of the figment in the text-book were peeled off one after another and thrown into the waste-basket one day with his delightful mixture of alertness and nonchalance james was reducing a word to its meanings trying to find the heart of it by pulling away some of its connotations there was no heart in it one student who had not quite followed the game and still mistook the faceless abstraction for the god of his fathers grew aghast at the process of verbal denudation and cried out but i do not see how that takes away my god Professor James paused for a puzzled moment, and then replied, It doesn't. Your God stands on his own hind legs. Then he pursued the idea, often found in his books, that the metaphysical absolute is like an anatomist's mannequin. It can be taken apart and put together. It may be a useful diagram of a living being, but it is itself dead since he permitted himself such homely metaphors indeed he took pleasure in a slang trope politely apologizing for its vulgarity one may say that his philosophy stands on its own hind legs and he left standing-room for other men's convictions he respected what stands alone and was suspicious of artificial props exuberant foe of all ghostly abstractions and of reasons that smack of intellectual dishonesty he deferred humbly to the faiths and feelings of men he was a learner at the feet of life and in that attitude he kept his students but to represent him so the words are at fault savors of a sort of pious solemnity quite foreign to his spirit of animated discursive inquiry most often he took his students on holiday explorations and in the midst of an intellectual picnic he turned poet and prophet and spoke with an eloquence which no man less than a genius can approach when his discourses take shape in print they retain their colloquial informality and gain heightened power from compression and rearrangement His psychology however solid a textbook it may be is really a series of literary essays If the chapter on habit were bound in a volume of Stevenson or Emerson it might surprise us there but it would not be inharmonious with its surroundings other philosophers talk of previous philosophers and of such ancient literature as has become respectable and dignified james refers abundantly to modern poets and essayists: whitman richard jefferies edward carpenter swinburne tennyson tolstoy james thompson thackeray chesterton and h g wells some psychologists throw life into rigid cold shadows cast by an artificial light james views the world in the sunlight of nature which overflows and streams beyond the shadow casting facts his varieties of religious experience is an anthology of poetry and biography a study not of theologies but of human beings there is something capaciously tolerant about the book as if the mind that made it were large enough to understand and value any sort of man even though candor flatly rejected his religion in pragmatism and the meaning of truth and a pluralistic universe where he is fighting a dexterous and exhilarating battle james is dignified and dead in earnest yet capable of hearty laughter my failure he says in making converts to my conception of truth seems almost complete an ordinary philosopher would feel disheartened and a common choleric sinner would curse god and die whether or not one is converted to his conception it is impossible not to be converted to the man what we enjoy most in a huxley or a clifford he says is not the professor with his learning but the human personality ready to go in for what it feels to be right in spite of all appearances much of james's work is a war of words that is a war of life against words for this task no man was ever better fitted they who would nip pragmatism in the bud an operation which one critic regards as the present duty of philosophy must choose sharp hard weapons lest the assaulting edges be nicked on the steel they encounter james outstrips all his rivals in his power over language language professional and colloquial diurnal and traditional if there be reason in the old idea that clarity of statement is proof of truth he is unassailably true he has defined himself in his account of bergson if anything can make hard things easy to follow it is a style like bergson's a straightforward style an american reviewer lately called it failing to see that such straightforwardness means a flexibility of verbal resource that follows the thought without crease or wrinkle as elastic underclothing follows the movements of one's body the lucidity of bergson's way of putting things seduces you and bribes you in advance to become his disciple it is a miracle and he is a real magician james too is straightforward rapid luminous moreover he has a humor rare in philosophers a whimsical wayward style of sliding round venerable monuments of superstition a variety and adaptability not only to his argumentative purpose but to the moods of human beings the expositor writes at his subject the man of letters writes at living persons james strikes like a poet at the middle of your nature and discovers what only the man of sympathy can give you courage to feel that the avenues of approach to your centre of intelligence are populous with ideas no doubt his eloquence is a consolation to his opponents who will take refuge in the inhuman notion that true wisdom is dull and that beauty is meretricious but james has himself swept away the classroom fallacy that stupidity of expression is a warrant of philosophic profundity his chapter on hegel in a pluralistic universe is a declaration of independence one article of which relates to the question of style there seems something grotesque and so grenou in the pretension of a style so disobedient to the first rules of sound communication between minds to be the authentic mother-tongue of reason james is a master of words and his mastery has fitted him to clear away some towering structures that forbade a free passage to the open country he has pierced many frowning champions and found them like the formidable knight of arthurian legend to hold but a weak boy inside the shining accoutrement he knew the core and fringes of terms and was not to be deceived by the fallacies involved in them he delighted to shake a philosophic word and make it give up its meaning or give up the ghost too many words he thought gave up nothing but ghosts he liked to strip a phrase of its ancestral respectability to wipe off its sattelicious splendors and send it into a fight with life and see it come back bruised and faint he enjoyed pulling a formulated solemnity from its precarious one-sided attachment to a metaphysical edifice and then scrutinizing the fragments but he was destructive only in the interests of clarity and honesty the superficial mistook his dexterity and lightness of heart for frivolity His ready metaphor about the cash value of an idea has even been so far debased by a foreign critic as to be used in proof of the commercialism of America. As he cries, Oh for the rarity of ordinary secular intelligence! James destroyed sanctified verbalisms because he distrusted the impositions of mere words. His main interest was not words, but life. To the ordinary inquisitive mind, philosophy is a region of spectres and vapours. It is not full of substantial things. James strides out of the misty bog to the shining uplands of human life. He knew the world. He was a man of sound information, a biologist, a reader of contemporary writings and contemporary events when he spoke of political and moral problems it was not from an academic twilight but from the highway where he walked with other men in our time we are losing respect for ordinate authority we expect the philosopher and other leaders of thought to make good james called upon himself and his colleagues to give an account of themselves not only as professors but as men humbug is humbug he says even though it bear the scientific name that confession is one that the common citizen has been demanding for a long time we are suspicious of what james calls the common herd of philosophic scribes it was time we had a professor whose pages should glow with sincerity it was high time especially in new england universities that the grand lamas of learning should be made to realize that they live in our world that they cannot withdraw to the lofty remoteness of Tibet, however much they may prefer the climate we are beginning to count the cost of the inefficient church and the inefficient university we are trying to clear our shoddy and cotton skirts which inefficient statesmanship sells to us at all wool prices from the briars of bewilderment we are striving to find a way out to things that matter to make our lives and schools and governments better in this struggle james was a liberator he justified his academic tribe as he jokingly says he tried to earn his salary as a full professor he was impatient with the nonsense of his class because he had sympathy for other classes he did not try to allay but vigorously stirred the ferment of rebellion which is boiling over the walls of institutionalism in all parts of the world mark twain has been mentioned in this chapter partly for the pleasure of imagining the shock which the association of the two men might give to critical souls but chiefly because the association is just they are the two splendid figures in the pitifully small number of american humanists of their generation they both had heart and humor and eloquence and humanity Footnote it may not be indiscreet to give in a footnote an example of james's whole-souled manner of recognizing contemporary idealisms of his readiness to throw scholarly apparatus overboard and go straight to essential truth there has been much psychological and much pseudo-psychological discussion of miss helen keller professor james wrote to her in praise of one of her books after some lively compliments about her psychology and her literary gifts he said the sum of it is that you're a blessing and i'll kill any one that says you're not lest the reader far from boston may take this for granted and say of course she was at radcliffe he was a harvard professor and harvard professors must necessarily have been enthusiastic about this wonderful student i may add that in this james seems to be as much an exception to the temper of official cambridge as he was an exception in many other significant things end of footnote it is usual to speak of mark twain as a philosopher in the popular sense of the word professional philosophers ignore that sense but james did not ignore it he valued it and bade his colleagues relate their philosophies to popular meanings to the experiences of common humanity our universities cannot be wholly useless when a college professor a lecturer upon abstruse problems can write as james wrote in eighteen ninety nine in the preface of his talks to teachers the practical consequence of such a philosophy the belief that the facts and worth of life need many cognizers to take them in is the well-known democratic respect for the sacredness of individuality is at any rate the outward tolerance of whatever is not itself intolerant these phrases are so familiar that they sound now rather dead in our ears once they had a passionate inner meaning such a passionate inner meaning they may easily acquire again if the pretension of our nation to inflict its own inner ideals and institutions vi et armis upon orientals should meet with a resistance as obdurate as so far it has been gallant and spirited religiously and philosophically our national doctrine of live and let live may prove to have a far deeper meaning than our people now seem to imagine it to possess biographical note william james was born in new york city january eleventh eighteen forty two he died in cambridge massachusetts august twenty sixth nineteen ten his father was henry james the swedenborgian writer mr henry james the novelist is his brother he studied at the lawrence scientific school and graduated from the harvard medical school in eighteen sixty nine he taught at harvard from eighteen seventy two to nineteen hundred and seven as instructor in physiology and anatomy then as professor of philosophy and psychology he gave the gifford lectures at edinburgh eighteen ninety nine to nineteen eleven and the hibbert lectures at oxford in nineteen hundred and eight in eighteen seventy eight he married alice h gibbons his works are principles of psychology 1890. Psychology briefer course, 1892, The Will to Believe and Other Essays in Popular Philosophy, 1897, Talks to Teachers on Psychology and to Students on Life's Ideals, 1898, Human Immortality, Two Supposed Objections to the Doctrine, 1899, The Varieties of Religious Experience, 1902, Pragmatism, a new name for some old ways of thinking, 1907 A Pluralistic Universe, 1908 The Meaning of Truth, 1909 Some Problems of Philosophy, 1911 Memories and Studies, 1911 Essays in Radical Empiricism, 1912 End of Section 19